take your copy of the scriptures and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter six. We'll we'll read verse eleven, but we're gonna we're gonna pick up at verse twelve where we left off last week. But First Timothy chapter six, beginning in verse eleven. But you, O man, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Verse twelve. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep, verse 14, this commandment without spot Blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Verse 15, which he will manifest at his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the sovereign or the king of kings and the, the Lord of lords. Verse 16, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray for your blessing upon your word as it has been read. And we pray, Father, for your blessing upon its instruction. Rest upon me as I speak. And we pray for the activity and the gracious work of your spirit upon each of us that we may hear and believe. So give us understanding where grace in our hearts, where it is needed. We pray it, Father, for your glory and namesake and the good of your church. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Verse 11 last week, if you remember the, the closing words to Timothy, where the apostle, as we begin to unfold in these verses from 11 through 16, that there are, there are, if you remember, there are a series of imperatives, commands. Uh, verse 11, flee these things, pursue, pursue. And you remember, he, then he, he strung together a list of, of, uh, of Christian virtues. And so there were things that Timothy was to flee and things he was to pursue. And this morning we, we come to the next imperative in verse 12. It's fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Again, we'll see in verse 12, the next imperative, lay, lay hold on eternal life. And then, Lord really, we'll make it down to verse 14, this imperative, keep, keep this commandment. And so we return to this list of these Final exhortations, these 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 final imperatives. And what we have here is really it's really a collection of of imperatives pertaining to a a, a ministerial charge to Timothy. It really is a ministerial charge. And and relating to that is a it's a charge. And we saw this last week in verse 13. I urge you, I charge you in the sight of God. But it's a charge, a ministerial charge to Timothy to perseverance, to continue, to not give up in the face of opposition, his pastoral labors, whether they be at Ephesus or other places in his future. Again, we have the language we have noticed along the way that the apostle loves to use. He'll use language that will speak of laboring to exhaustion. And he'll, these will either relate to uh, athletic metaphors or to military metaphors. And we're, we're in a section where he's dealing with 
military metaphors again. In, in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. It was in December of 1944 that the 101st Airborne was surrounded in Bastogne, in Belgium, a little town. Uh, the Germans, the Axis forces, Adolf Hitler in particular, had one last chance to make a, a, a lunge to, to try to push the Allied forces back into the English Channel and try to, to stop complete defeat. And so everything he had, the last moment he thrust everything forward. But there in that little town was the 101st Airborne. And when they were outnumbered five to one, when the German commander spoke to the, the American forces and said, surrender, do you remember what the American commander said? Nuts. Nuts. And they stood the ground and they held the forces back. And along with that and other things that begin to take place by God's providence, like the Germans running out of fuel and so forth, they were not able to push the Allied forces back. But standing your ground, as Paul will often speak of in the way of ministry and for Christians, to stand firm. And so there's times in our lives, in military terms as Christians, that we are to stand firm. And then there are times we press forward. And here we have that kind of language again. If last week was, we saw that first point here, these imperatives, things to flee and things to pursue, Christian virtues to pursue like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Now we come to the second imperative and it is fight. Fight the good fight of faith there in verse 12. And so Timothy has been called, called by God into active warfare. And he's to persevere. And he is not to abandon his post. And the same is true of all of us. Our activity in life in the church, in our homes, where we find ourselves as God's people, we're not to abandon our station, our post as God's people. We're to stand firm for Christ. Humbly, yes, but firmly and clearly. And we're not to be a deserter from the truth, from the foundation in which we stand and have embraced by faith. We're not to run away in fear of danger. We've been given, like Timothy, we've been given a great responsibility. And we will all give an account. We're all given account. And the apostle is going to remind us of the greatness of that accountability this morning. But in this case with Timothy, if you remember as a, a type of apostolic delegate, legate, representative for Paul, he has been sent to Ephesus to confront the false teachers, to put things in order. In fact, Paul calls him man of God. Again, as Calvin said, to put weight on him and to remind him of his responsibility, lifting that expression from the Old Testament, a term that was used of Moses and Elijah, a, a, a term, man of God, one that would have a word from God to the people of God. And as God's man, as a minister of the gospel, Timothy is called to serve the living God. Timothy is to set the example to the elders at Ephesus. As we saw now, as we are coming to the last chapter, as we saw in the beginning of our, our journey through 1 Timothy, where the Paul prophesied and spoke of the danger that was coming uh, to the church at Ephesus and where some would desert the faith. And so Timothy was to, as we saw in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, set things in order. There were to be elders that met certain qualifications. And Timothy was to set the example to the elders and the church body at Ephesus. And Timothy was to love that which Christ loves. And that is the bride of Christ, the church. 
And so Timothy was to guard the flock, protect her from the false teachers and from their heterodoxy, their unorthodox doctrine. You remember the words of that that prophetic word of Paul after he'd been teaching. He'd been teaching for three years in Ephesus. The church had been established. He'd been teaching there. And then before his departure over in Acts 20, we find these words in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He tells the elders, therefore, take heed. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the flock of God, which he pastored, which he purchased, I mean, with his own blood. Verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, Paul says, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock Also from among yourselves, from among yourselves, from among the eldership, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. There was that prophetic word. And by the time we get to first Timothy, this seems to have now this has come to pass. And now Paul sends Timothy. And so Timothy was sent by Paul to Ephesus to oppose these savage wolves. The false teachers, the apostate elders, and he was to set things in order. Reminding him of this work to fight the good fight of faith. That he was at war as a minister and a representative of the gospel. As we've, as I've said this quote before from Calvin concerning the role of a a minister, a pastor, as a shepherd. Uh, Calvin says that there is, you remember this, that there's a double nature of teaching ministry. A double nature of teaching ministry. He says this, quote, a pastor needs two voices. One for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means for doing both. And he who has been rightly instructed in it will be able both to rule those who are teachable and refute the enemies of the truth. And then he says, Paul notes this double use of scripture, says Calvin, when he says that he should be able both to exhort and to convict the gainsayers, end quote. And so there's a shepherding, a protecting, a guarding, a war, a fighting the good fight that we see here in verse 12 that takes place in ministry. However, we should all remember that for the minister and for all of us as God's people, remember last week I, I moved from man of God to people of God. Remember that transition? That as he sets the example, as Paul spoke of Timothy in this letter, as he sets the example for all of us, there's this understanding that the man of God is part of the people of God. And so the, all of these things that he's saying to the minister will have implications for each of us. And so though in ministry... There's to be a warfare, the battling against the false teachers, against those outward enemies. But let us all understand, for the minister and for the people of God, there's also those enemies of our souls, those inward enemies that come to all of us. Those enemies that are not just against the church corporately, not just corporately but also against the man of God personally and against all of us as the people of God, men and women of God, those things that are against us and that come against us and war against our soul. You see, for Timothy, he was not only to exhort the people of God to perseverance, but he himself must continue. He must not waver. 
He must not persevere. Again, this language. Fight. The word for fight. Some of your Bibles translate it warfare. That's where we get our English word. Our English word to derive from that is agonize. Agonize. Again, it's used in the Bible in pertaining to the athletic events, our military. To agonize. We catch a flavor of this when Paul, in his second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, where he says this. You therefore, Timothy, you therefore, Timothy, must endure hardship. You must endure hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. And so this is a a reality that every elder, every minister, and every church member should understand of the warfare that takes place corporately, individually, and in this case that really drives home to the eldership and to the minister of the gospel. I, I think we also have in these words, Paul wants us to understand how few men will persevere in pastoral ministry and the difficulty of it. One of the young men in our congregation, one that can come to me and he looks at me in the face and and he, he says to me, God's called me to pastoral ministry. God's called me to the ministry. And he knows in our, our first meeting uh, that... Uh, I and Stormy, as we sat with him and his wife, one of the first things we began to do do is I would move through a list. And one of my things that I attempt to do in the first or or second meeting when I meet with a young man who who, who says he has that desire, that calling in his heart, the pastoral ministry, is I try to talk him out of it. Because if I can talk him out of it, someone else can talk him into it, right? I want him to understand what he's signing up for and the difficulties of it. And the, the nature of what we would call Christendom that the West has experienced now the last few hundred years, it's coming to an end. And the kind of status that a minister, a clergy member may have experienced in 1950, 1960, 1970 and so forth, those days are quickly coming to a close. And so the warfare and the dangers, the stress, the threat will increasingly ramp up, I believe, over the coming decades. And this warfare that he speaks to Timothy, this fight the good fight, this what you must endure hardship, 2 Timothy 2, 3, as a good minister of Jesus Christ. It is, Paul uses the language of a continuous tense. It's a, it's a, a warfare that's continuous. It's unending. In other words, the unholy trinity, the unholy trinity that wars against our soul, the flesh, the devil, the world, they never let up. They never fully sleep. If one begins to ebb for just a a period of time, the other raises its head. Just to illustrate how constant it is. Again, for the eldership of the church, then moving out to the church body upon our own souls and the things that we wage warfare against. All around us and within us. Just to illustrate this. That it's never ending. Some of you have been with us long enough that you've gone through the equipping hour class of church history. When we've gone a year through church history. And what you quickly find out. if If you thought that you would come to study church history. And you would find everything nice and neat and orderly clean, and that's not the case at all. Church history is what? It's messy. It's very messy. It's not what you thought you would find. Because the flesh, the devil, and the world, they never let up. 
Church history is messy. You, you find doctrinal conflict after conflict. And it never ends. The creeds that we confess, they are chiseled out. They are hammered out in the midst of doctrinal controversy to establish and set forth the truth. What's so important that we are a creedal and confessional church. And the doctrinal conflicts will not stop. They will continue. Or consider this. Fallen church leaders. Name a year gone by that you, at some point throughout the year, don't find someone that you may have, in a a genuine sense, enjoyed their preaching and teaching. You, You knew of their ministry, maybe from a distance, and you hear of their fall. Our churches, denominations, that fought for the truth at one time, that were faithful. And then decades later, they're apostate. They're no longer faithful or true churches at all. Do you see? And this not only happens in Christendom, that is, the visible church, but in the lives of God's people and in local churches. It never lets up. And watch this. After he says, fight the good fight of faith. And there's some question there, because there is a definite article there. It is fight the good fight of the faith. But there is some debate in the way this is used. Is he talking about the faith that is confessed like the creed? Or is it or is it both? As, as Timothy is a minister of the gospel, faith, faith in this faith that he begins that will begin to unfold here in just a moment. So there may be a little bit of both here. This he's he's to fight the good fight of faith. Clinging to this foundation. And notice verse 12 again. Because he moves right into this next imperative. Lay. Lay hold. Or as some of your Bibles say. Take hold. On eternal life. Now watch this. You begin to quickly realize. Not only verse 12. There is this warfare. This fight the good fight. But then he uses this language, this command, this imperative, lay hold, take hold on eternal life. So we begin to realize that as we have embraced Christ by faith, there's a believing, a trusting, and a resting. In the, and when we speak of faith in Christ, that we quickly realize that the Christian life is not a bed of ease. It's not just drifting along. We begin to mature and grow. As, as the Spirit has come into our life with the Word, all of a sudden we're finding out about areas in our lives that need sanctified, that need to be conformed to God's truth and Word, to the image of the Son. And we begin to realize that there's an enemy prowling about, seeking to devour us. We begin to find how weak we really are to the temptations that are held out to us by the world. Is that not true? And so here he says, take hold of eternal life. Cling to it. Laid hold of it. And we realize that that faith in Christ, growing in it and maturing in it, and leading to this, this perseverance, this continuing in it, is not... It's not a doctrine, a teaching. The Bible isn't saying, now that you've come to faith in Christ, let go and let God. (laughs) Friends, it doesn't teach that. It doesn't teach that. It's not a doctrine. 
The Bible doesn't teach a doctrine of perseverance and continuing in the Christian life of carelessness. Carelessness is deadly. It doesn't teach a life of ease for the Christian. No, it's a it's a teaching and a doctrine of active participation. The Bible teaches faith and the pursuit of faith and growth and maturity. This is why the local church is not just helpful, but essential life together. The ordinary means of grace, the instruction and the reading of God's word, the table, prayer, all the things involved in church life, life together. But it's faith, a living faith, a lively faith is what we are called to. Now watch this again. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. And watch this. To which you were also called. There's effectual calling. To which you were also called. Again, I love it when the, the Bible does this. It sets forth those, those doctrines that we cherish and love that are found here. And it sets them plainly before us. I mean, what we have here. Coupled together is the wonderful truth of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Do you see it? It's right there. Take hold of eternal life. To which you were also called. Spurgeon called human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Do you remember what he called them? He said they were two friends. When people said, how do you reconcile these and he said, I don't have to reconcile two friends. God is sovereign. We are responsible. So one, you are to take hold. You are to lay hold of eternal life to that to which you were also called. So faith, faith is embracing Laying hold of eternal life in Christ alone. And the reality that God, though, is behind it all. Right? He's behind it all. He has called us. Again, this is effectual calling by God's word and spirit. He's given us life. And Timothy, listen... Timothy is able to take hold on eternal life because God had taken hold of him. And that's what happened to us. Sometimes we don't understand that at first in our conversion experience. We often think of, we begin to interpret scripture sometimes by our experience. We go, well, I came to faith in Christ. I heard the gospel, I believed. You did. But later you learn that underneath all of that, behind all of that, was God. Right? Just a little secret. The Armenian will often interpret the Bible from experience. The Calvinist will often interpret the Bible from the activity of God. One from the activity of man, one from the activity of God. Do you see the difference there? But again... We don't need to reconcile two friends. As Paul would teach to the Philippians in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Listen to this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation in, with fear and trembling and then verse 13, for it is God who works in you both, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, again, notice the next part of verse 12. After he says, lay hold of eternal life to which you were called, 
Then he makes this statement, and and have confessed, and have confessed the good confession and the presence of many witnesses. So what is Paul speaking of? What is this? Confess the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Some believe it's Timothy's confession of faith when he came to know Christ savingly. But let me say this. The, The New Testament doesn't speak of what we think of a modern evangelical confession or profession of faith in that sense. You know, the, you know how the New Testament speaks of people's profession of faith in Christ? Water baptism. They're baptized. They just, that's how that counts them. How do you know when somebody came to know Christ? They took the name of the triune God. It was placed on them. Yeah, in baptism. That's what it does. So it's probably not just a bare confession of faith. Some think it was his baptism. When Timothy was baptized, he made this confession, this good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And that's a, that's a possibility, speaking of his baptism. The third option is that many believe that this has to do when Timothy was set apart. But we think of the ordination. We've seen this in this book, and that seems to fit the best. We saw this in chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 14. Remember chapter 4, verse 14? Listen to the language there. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by, by prophecy with the laying on the hands of the eldership. And that seems to fit the context of not only him being set apart and hands were laid upon him, that he confessed that he made this good confession in the presence of many witnesses, other elders, maybe even apostles like Paul. But that seems to fall also in the context of this exhortation to his perseverance in ministry. And so we might say these last words are reminding Timothy of what we would call his ordination vows. His ordination vows. That's why we have this charge in verse 13. I urge you, I charge you in the sight of God. Well, again, what we think of as an ordination type sermon, an ordination charge. I charge you in the sight of God. And so let's move now to verse 13. And here's the ground of the charge and of this long list of imperatives. The ground, the ground of this charge Your NKJV says urge. The better word is I charge you. Not I urge you, I charge you. Again, it's military language, like orders. I charge you in the sight of God. This is is like what we saw in that paragraph in the confession concerning perseverance. That foundation. Here's the ground. Here's the foundation that Timothy clings to by faith, which is the ground, the foundation of this charge. And notice the language here. He he moves to that he's going to charge him as an apostle, as an apostle and a representative of Jesus Christ and before God himself. Which moves Paul as Paul when he begins to talk about God, he just bursts into a doxology, a, a word of praise about God. Well, let's see what time we have remaining if I can do justice here. And don't be surprised if next week we touch back on this just a little bit into the next section. But notice verse 13. I urge you, I charge you in the sight of God. Here's the ground of the charge. Verse 13 through 16. In the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing which he will manifest at his own time. Again, Paul seems to be closing this section with a charge, and it's an apostolic charge, with the added weight of the accountability before God. And again, shifting from not just Timothy and the elders of the church, which we have this grave and important responsibility and charge upon us as, as, as ministers in, life in Christ's church, 
that upon us. Again, setting the example, this is before all of us. We will all give an account. We will all stand before the, the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account. And so he gives this weight of accountability before God. And Paul, again, he, he's done this to some measure already in chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, verse 21. You remember this? Chapter 5, verse 21. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember that unusual language there. And his elect angels. Charges. He's being charged before God and the angels of heaven. That you observe these things without prejudice. And do nothing with partiality. And so now again. With this great weight, he closes this, he's beginning to close this letter, and it's the reality of the one true God he wants to bring upon him. Now watch this. In verse, in verse 13, this charge is in the sight of God who gives, notice the language, who gives life. God who is life. God who is pure being. Give life. To all things. All things are held together. Paul says in writing Colossians. By God. God gives life. We as creatures are not pure being. We need creation to be sustained. Air, oxygen, water, food, right? We need these things. God is not dependent upon creation. The creator, there's a distinction between creator and creature. And the creator is not dependent upon his creation. He doesn't need oxygen. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need air. He doesn't need his creation. So God is, God is the one who gives life. The one who is life gives life. Now this is important because Timothy's to take hold of eternal life. And where is it found? In God. In God alone. And so the one true God who gives life and gives life to all things, God is alone the one who is life and the source of eternal life. And then notice this. It's not only God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus. The one whom the Father has given him that, that role and responsibility as the judge. Who will judge all things. The Lord Jesus Christ. And this Christ Jesus who witnessed. Notice this. Who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Christ Jesus there in his earthly ministry. There seems to be. He's setting it forth. You follow. You're a follower of Christ. Remember Christ in his earthly ministry. When asked. About who he was. Was he king? He gave, a, he gave a good confession and said, Yes, to Pontius Pilate, and for the presence of those that were there. Verse 14, not only the representative and the and the model of Christ that he was to follow after and the one he would give an account to, verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot. Blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. Again, at his appearing will there be judgment. This commandment, this it's either this immediate charge or everything that he's been saying throughout this book. And you remember chapter 3, to elders, they are to be blameless. So all these things, Timothy is to be applying and modeling. Now again, verse, verse 15. Which he will manifest in his own time. Now, it's just a, something to consider. This last Thursday was, for much of the visible church, they celebrate a day called what? Epiphany. What does that mean? She wins it, Tracy. She said, like a revelation. A manifestation, right? Yeah. yeah. We've seen his star. It has appeared. It was, it's usually, some call it the, uh, I've heard some call it the Three Kings Day. Yeah. Have you heard that? Yeah. yeah. The, the Magi, uh, they, they, um, 
the, the appearing of Christ onto the scene was made manifest. And so we have something like that here. Which he, and this is in the case of Christ's second coming. Once his first advent, we think of the advent season, epiphany, but now this second advent of Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ at his appearing, which he will manifest. When? In his own time. According to his sovereign prerogative. You mean I can't mathematically figure this out? 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988? <laughs> oh. Okay. We'll leave this to God and we'll be faithful. Right? Depressed to bring the truth of the gospel to all peoples and established churches. To be ready that at his appearing we will give an account of when that day will be. To be blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest at his own time. And now he erupts, watch this, he erupts into this uh, doxology. He who is the blessed, the one to be praised, and only potentate or our sovereign, the one almighty, the one sovereign one. And this, then this expression used by Christian, the king, sometimes we, we don't let that sink in. The king of kings. Lord of lords. The king of all the kings. The Lord of all the lords, of all the world leaders and those in authority, he is over them all and established them. Revelation calls him the ruler of the kings of the earth. So he speaks of the one again who Timothy will give an account, the sovereign God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Verse 16, who alone, notice this, who alone has immortality. The God who is, the God who is life himself is the God of eternal life, immortality, who alone has it. And then notice his language here, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. You, you hear this language of Moses, of God in the burning bush, or, or Moses who desired to see God and could not see God face to face. Because if you saw God face to face, you shall surely what? Die. And he hid in the cleft of the rocks. John Chrysostom, that early preacher, the early church, in, in one of his writings on what's called on the incomprehensibility of the nature of God says this about this verse. Listen to this. He says, quote, and pay, pay heed, he says, to the accuracy with which Paul speaks. He did not say who is unapproachable light, but who dwells in unapproachable light. Why? So that you may learn that if the dwelling is unapproachable, so much more so is the God who dwells in it. But Paul did not say this to make you suspect that there is a house or place surrounding God. Rather, he wished you to have a deeper and superior knowledge that God is beyond our comprehension a thing is unapproachable, which from the start cannot be investigated, nor can anyone come near to it. We call the sea, the sea incomprehensible, because even when divers lower themselves into the waters and go down to a great depth, they cannot find the bottom. We call that thing unapproachable, which from the start cannot be searched out 
are investigated, end quote. So he's the God dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To be honor, he says, and everlasting power. Amen. This closing charge reminds us of much of what Paul has already written. Timothy, like every faithful minister, is to take these words as crucial, vital. They're vital for himself and for his ministry, for the people of God. Again, back in chapter 4, this was said there in 1 Timothy 4, verse 15 and 16. Be reminded of these words. 1 Timothy 4, verse 15 and 16. Meditate. Timothy, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident before all. Take heed to yourselves, to the doctrine, to yourself and to the doctrine, to the teaching. Continue in them for in doing this, you will what? Save yourself and those who hear you. Do you understand what he's saying here? Timothy, be absorbed in biblical truth, apostolic doctrine. Meditate on it. Take heed to its work in your soul and to the doctrine that you teach. For in doing this, and your life and ministry in the church and expository preaching, it will work to the end for the perseverance, the salvation of your soul and the people of God. You see why we need the church? You ever thought of weekly expository preaching and the gathering of the saints is for our soul's salvation. That we may, yes, hear the gospel receive Christ by faith and be justified. But show, but also so that we would grow and mature in sanctification. You hear that in our prayers each week? And that we may be, that we would grow and persevere in the faith. And not find ourselves a castaway, apostate, drifting from the truth like some of the elders at Ephesus had done and people that had chased after them. This is why it is important that we are in the constant meditation and instruction of God's word, that we would grow in it. The servants of the church, the elders, the deacons, but also the entire church body, we must not grow weary in these things. There's a sense where week after week, there's much of the same thing that happens. Word, sacrament, prayer, word, sacrament, prayer, and the fellowship of the saints. And many people will come and go and they will search for something. Well, what's next? What's the next big thing? And they grow bored with bread and wine and the book and the fellowship of God's people and prayer together and fellowship of God's people. And they would chase after something else. And we'll see them for a season and then they'll be gone. But what we are doing week after week is what God has called us to do. And it's not unlike body discipline, what you eat, how you exercise, how you educate yourself week after week throughout your life to grow and to mature as a human being. These are the things that we do to grow as immature. As God's people. We must grow. 
and not grow weary. We must press into faithfulness, continuing in the faith, in life and doctrine. We must hold firm. Listen, hold firm until the end. Paul would say it like this. Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Do you hear God's word, saints? Hold time. Our passage reminds us also lastly. That we all stand before. Our creator, our great God. Our judge. As God's people, we will give an account. And if you are here this morning without Christ. You are given account. You will stand before this glorious God who the language of the text is who dwells in unapproachable light. And on that day, every wicked thought and deed and lack of obedience will be brought to light and made plain. And you will be judged for that. And you will give an account. Or this morning by faith. You can receive the one. Who has stood in the place of sinners. And he's taken upon himself. The penalty. That was due to our sin. And our error. He has taken it upon himself. And was judged for sinners. He bore the curse for us. The one whom that if you flee to, who is the way, the truth and the life. And it is Christ Jesus. Take hold of him. Take hold of him by faith alone. And it's found in Christ alone. For in him is eternal life. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, Warrington, Virginia. If you live in Northern Virginia, please join us for worship this Sunday. For more information, please visit us online at covenantrbc.org.